This is Topless Water, and we have a kind of a special episode we're doing today. We're here in Austin at the Better Half Bar, and it's a you know nice evening or at happy hour, which is you know great. And I'm joined with three friends: Carlos Rubenstein, his wife Judy, and Vanessa Quig Williams. And so, Carlos, they're giving me the thumbs up. I did that part all right. So, uh, Carlos is a repeat. You're one of the two people have been on twice now, so you don't get that special or anything, but, you know, Carlos was uh, the Rio Grande Watermaster, and then he was a commissioner at the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, and then the chairman of the Texas Water Development Board, and now you have your own consulting firm, and so I always get the letters wrong, so why don't you tell us what it's R-S-A-H-2-O. You you heard it, folks. And uh, Judy, it's the first time I met you. I've you know, seen you, you know, um, with Carlos at different water events, so I'm glad you could join us. Thank you for having me. You're gonna, I'm, I'm sure you're going to monitor him and, like, keep him <laughs> from getting out of control. So oh, it's, yeah. it's pretty wise, <laughs> I think. So he probably knows more about water than any of us realize. I, I bet you do. I bet you do. He's exposed to it. Right, right. You, <laughs> you may, be not, may have not had a whole lot of choice in it, but, but uh, uh, so Vanessa is uh, an attorney, and she had her own firm, and she is now uh, with the Environmental Defense Fund, and she is the lead on groundwater for the Environmental Defense Fund in Texas. And so, um, you know, she's in the middle of a lot of things, as you can imagine. Uh, Carlos and Vanessa have just recently uh, written an article, and so... Uh, I don't know. Should we talk about that first or the legislature first? I just make sure we don't. We can talk about. We can talk about the paper. Yeah, it's a good lead in. Good yeah. lead in. Good, good. So, so tell us what uh, your paper's about, and and uh, you know what the subject is, and what what you you found out in this paper. Well, I would say that the main gist of the paper is how there is an inextricable and vitally important link between groundwater planning and state water planning in Texas. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. I think the state water plan and the process that communities across the state go through to develop those plans and all of the water supply strategies is probably more on people's minds, but the the way that groundwater planning and management feeds into that and informs a lot of the strategies in that plan, I think is is really kind of buried and often not realized. In the paper, what we're really saying is that we need to we need to focus a lot more on what's missing from groundwater planning, what needs to be improved upon, because it is of the utmost importance to sound water planning in the state. I don't know if you want to fill in. I, I agree with that. When Vanessa and I decided to write this paper, um, I told her that I wished that when I was chairman of the Water Development Board, that I better understood the relationship of the DFC and how it informs the state water plan and the regional water plans. And 
how on the legislative side we have the right nine elements to look at in the development of the desired future condition. But in our paper, what we took a look at is a critical need of how is it that the GCDs are conservation groundwater conservation districts are actually looking at those nine elements. It isn't a question about the nine elements. The nine elements are correct. It is about the robustness of the review of those nine elements that could better inform state water planning. Another concern that we had is the sustainability of our groundwater resources. It is it's troubling to recognize that desired future conditions of Texas today continue to call for an expected continued decline yeah. of our groundwater resources. It's not, it's not sustainable. Right. So we address that as well. So just so, you know, because we have listeners from, from all around now, you know, Texas has got a program called Desired Future Conditions where these groundwater districts, and there are 100 groundwater districts and two subsidence districts in the state, uh, and they, you know, try to determine what they want their aquifer to look like, you know, in the future. 50 years. In 50 years, and that determines, you know, how much they can pump during that time. And so... If you're in California, SIGMA, Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, is, is kind of based on this, but it's reversed. It's what you don't want your aquifer to look like out right. there. All the unreasonable impacts that might occur from you know, overpumping right. and how you avoid those. And you might think that, um, well, you know, in this process, you know, the the groundwater districts might select, well, you know, we want the aquifer to, you know, stay kind of as is, you know, hopefully the levels not drop too far. But, you know, a lot of the plans have have significant uh, declines in aquifer levels over 50 years. Yeah, I mean, I often, when I'm talking to people that don't know this process very well, describe it as management goals, long-term management goals that districts come together and adopt and define. And the nine elements that Carlos mentioned are basically things that districts are required in the law to look at to help them inform those um, those desired future conditions and long-term goals. And, you know, we think that actually, as as Carlos said, that those, those considerations are good. Like, I mean, I, the legislature was well advised, I think, in how they uh, thought about that process because it says districts, look, we need to look at what the impact's going to be to property rights, what the impact's going to be to environmental resources like spring flow, um, what the economic impact is going to be. Um, and so, you know, they're supposed to come together and look at all those considerations and adopt this goal. And unfortunately, most of the goals that we're seeing, I think it's like 95% of them in the state are unsustainable and they're allowing aquifers to decline. We didn't get into the paper about why that's the case. I mean, we talk about what we can do to change that, what type of information districts don't have that they need to be able to make more informed decisions. But, you know, I think that districts are under a lot of pressure to uh, allow more pumping. And so that's probably part of the reason. And I think just the fact that groundwater really is still secret 
and a cult in many ways. I mean, we feel like we have a good hold on it, but there's still so much that at the local level, districts don't know. And, you know, that's a key point to make in the paper is that you have to have that data. You have to have the funding to create that data so that districts can actually make those kinds of considerations in a real and important way. So just to add a little background context here, the Brownwater districts, you know, I guess all hundred of them, maybe, you know, have elected boards. And so some of them are appointed. Okay. Some of them are appointed. Uh, But if you're an elected board, yeah, can you hear that? Uh, We'll mention the drinks here in a second. I'll I'll come to that next. Uh, So, you know, if you're, these are local districts and, you know, local elections. And so, uh, you know, there's a question about if the local community and the the people who are Republican radiographers are not really on board with limiting production, you know, it's kind of hard to get reelected and deny your constituents access to as much of the resources they want. And so... Yeah, along those lines, I may take an issue with that because... One of the things that we also recognize in the paper are the limitations that we have placed uh, on the groundwater conservation districts. So, for example, we asked them to consider these nine elements. We don't have the right data or the right models to properly consider the nine elements. But yet we're asking them to do that. We're not funding the groundwater conservation districts in their data acquisition. But we're still asking them to consider these nine elements. These districts, when they make those tough decisions, and some of them may actually want to curtail pumping, when they make these tough decisions, find themselves being sued. Yeah. We don't represent them as a state in court when they get sued. So in some ways, we have set them up to fail. Yeah. They got limited financing. I mean, you know, that's part of it. They're charging fees for their poppers. Some of them, I guess, have taxing authority, but, but most of them are they're charging fees. And so you just don't, they don't have much money. They don't. And, and there's always a fear of being sued by the next person that wants a permit to produce. What we also highlighted in the paper is Vanessa mentioned one of the nine elements is a socioeconomic impact. That is disproportionately today being applied to the cost or the impact of not producing the water. You're going to have an unmet need if you don't produce the water. What we're saying in the paper, that's not the way the bill was written. The bill said you have to take into account socioeconomic impact. That means if you're a local user in the area and your well is impacted, that is a socioeconomic impact to the area of origin and it should be also quantified. We need to yes. You you might want to take it from there, Vanessa. Well, no, I mean, that's exactly right. And I think another aspect is the impact that groundwater pumping has on surface water, right? Which is, you know, a real issue and concern across the state. And there was a study that was done years ago. Yeah, it's a 16. That's the one for 30%. Center. Yeah. No, no, no this is the water development. Yeah, the water development board's aquifer study determined that like 30% on average, the flow in rivers across the state is originates from groundwater. So 
you know, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty substantial contribution. And in the whole country, I'd say it's way more than that. You know, often it's 100%. I was going to talk about a study that was done years ago. Um, I think it was the Meadows Center for Water and the Environment that looked at sort of the the economic contribution that Jacob's Wells provides to the town of Liberley in terms of all of the tourism and hotel, I'm, I'm forgetting the exact amount, but I mean, it's millions of dollars yeah. in revenue that are brought into that town because of that spring. And unfortunately, right now, I don't know if y'all recently read that it's closed again this season for swimming because it's it's basically not flowing. Right, it's been close to August? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's terrible. This is normally yeah. when swim season would begin. Yeah, yeah. And it's, so it's, it's you know, uh, reflecting the ongoing drought and just more pumping in that region. There's a lot more, you know, people moving to central Texas and, you know, there's a lot more wells and, you know. And so there's a huge socioeconomic impact associated with that. But, but none of those impacts are being considered in the desired future condition process. Or, or, or I would go a step further, I don't think that they're being quantified properly in the permitting decisions. That's, I would agree with that. At the groundwater conservation districts. And one of the things that we've been stressing, and I'm going to let Vanessa deliver the punchline on this. Because we understand. Yeah. It's going to be good. I'm not sure what you want me to say. Oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> we have invested as a state after the drought of record in the state of Texas up until 2011 was the 1950s drought. And that led to a lot of infrastructure development. We built a bunch of dams. Right. And thank God we did it. We have lights. You know. But we don't think about groundwater that way. Groundwater aquifers are our reservoirs. They are our conveyance systems. And as Vanessa likes to say, aquifers are infrastructure too. There you go. And right. we, we got it in. Thinking about it that way. Right. So All right. That was a fist bump. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, it's true. In rural communities, groundwater is the only source of water. And so if we're not managing it proactively, then we're, those communities are vulnerable. Right. And we're investing billions of dollars. And, you know, right now, we're in the middle, just beginning this Texas legislative session and discussing, you know, the prospect of billions of dollars being invested in to water infrastructure, which is, of course, like, needed and super important, but aquifers are infrastructure, too. Yeah. So we need to think about how we can invest in science and the management of groundwater because if we're just simply investing in the pipes yeah. and the, the convey water without actually thinking about how we invest in the sustainability of the sources of water that flow through those pipes, then the whole state is gone. Right. Right. And along those lines, um, I think it's ironic. You and I, the last time we talked, we talked about surface water rights, and in particular the junior provision for surface water rights. Right. And the junior provision for the folks that are listening in is in Texas, if you're wanting to buy water, surface water rights, from another area to import to a different basin, it is tagged with the junior provision. And the reason that was done, it was the only way that to, to pass an omnibus bill in 1997 
Senate Bill 1. We do not have a junior provision for groundwater. Right. What right. happened after Senate Bill 1 was passed? It shifted groundwater production to new levels. Right. Right? So 60, and I was going to mention about 60% of the water used in the state is groundwater, and 80% of that groundwater use is for agriculture. Right. And, and so the same concern that you had in moving water from an area, the area of origin, yep. to an area where it's needed in surface water, that led to the junior provision being established in Senate Bill 1, which, as you and I talked last time, devalues water. Yep. We did not approve... Uh, we did not request that for groundwater, but you're robbing that area of its only source of water. Yeah. And that's why we think a second look at that socioeconomic yeah. equation is critically important. The other thing that Vanessa and I looked at is we did a retrospective review of the changes in groundwater requirements of groundwater conservation districts. And at the same time, the decisions the legislature was making on funding for the science. Mm-hmm. And those two lines did not match up well at all. While we were requesting groundwater conservation districts to do more, we were funding the Water Development Board much less to develop the science and the modeling. And you may want to take it Yeah, from there. I mean, in 2011, the Water Development Board's budget was cut by... And I couldn't believe that. But almost oh, yeah. right, during the drought. percent And most of that was built in the groundwater program. So, although the board has received some additional funds in 2019, they're nowhere near where they need to be in terms of funding to actually develop, update the models at pace with the threats, the demands that our groundwater supplies are experiencing. So, I mean, that's actually a huge priority for us at BES is to increase appropriations for the Water Development Board's groundwater modeling program, which right now, you know, is about $3 million per, per biennium. I mean, it's, it's not much. I think the technical assistance and modeling program receives over $2.6 million per year, and that includes both service and groundwater modeling. So, you know, I often say, like, you can't even buy a house in Austin, Texas, for what the water development board is, Seems like is that. using yeah. to, you know, develop models for our entire state. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Then I'm going to... Real quick point on this. Vanessa and I, when we first identified this, we thought, I wonder if anybody else has recognized this. What we found is in groundwater conservation, certain groundwater conservation districts, about half of the GMAs, groundwater management areas, they have recognized that the models that we have today are being relied upon to provide answers for which the model was never designed to do. Right. It isn't just that Vanessa and Carlos put this in a paper. 
It is in several explanatory reports. What we did find as well was we thought it would be a, a, an interesting cross pattern of GMAs, groundwater management areas that do re really well. Some that do it okay and some that could do it better. We did not find that. We really only had two camps. Those that do it really well and recognize the limitations and those that put the bare minimum of exploratory reports. And one of the reasons that we identified or was told to us during the process is they haven't gone further because they haven't gotten sued yet. Okay. That's a bad place to be. Right, right. So uh, just to kind of fill in a little bit from earlier. So junior surface water right means that say you're in East Texas River Basin, you've got a senior water right. That's the, a water right that has the old, older priority date, or maybe the oldest. Say, it, say it's a really old one. And you want to move that water, surface water, to another river basin. Um, it, by doing that, the priority date of that surface water right becomes the most junior and newest within that basin. And so if you are thinking about building a pipeline and bringing water um, from another river basin uh, and you're not sure that you're going to be able to use that water during a drought, well, you're probably not going to make that best. Um, so, go ahead. No, you're 100% correct. And you know what that also did? It shifted the right side to groundwater. Right. And that's why you see a disproportionate increase in reliance on groundwater exports following the junior provision. Because if I'm going to buy it, here's the yep. sad part. There's a bill in the Texas legislature today to get rid of the junior provision. Yeah. But we've had it since 1997. Right. The damage has been done. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to talk about the legislature next. But first, we have a, a short kind of intermission where we're going to talk about what we're drinking here. <laughs> I thought you were going to have I know. an advertisement here. <laughs> like, yeah. Almost. Yeah. Well, for the better half. You know, not that they'll ever care. But uh, so. Uh, now tell us what you what you got. So we are at the Better Half Cafe and Drinks, and my wife and I are drinking. We're on our second one of a drink called La Llorona, um, and it's really tasty. It's uh, based on tequila, but it has pineapple juice in it. Uh, you tasted it as well, yeah, yeah. And it's very refreshing. Highly recommend it. You should have Judy tell you what. Oh, yeah, tell that story. <laughs> well, it's a Spanish word for the crier or the weeper. It said it, the weeper. And it's about a uh, Mexican folktale about a woman who lost her children and goes around basically snatching other children, but also luring men into uh, a trance. A trance. Sounds like a lot like groundwater export projects. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I was born in Mexico, and one of the scariest stories you could hear back then is somebody telling you, La Llorona's coming for you. So yeah, this is like, her. you're out of line, you're trying to get him to stay in bed at night or something. Well, yeah, because yeah. he's supposed to be, you hear her crying oh, at okay. night. Yikes. Of course at night, right? Uh, and she's weeping for her children, so it's supposed to be scary. But this drink won't make you cry. Yeah, <laughs> this is a good drink. It's a good drink. It's good but drink. Vanessa and you are having something different. Yeah. yeah. You want 
describe it, Vanessa? We're having the Far West, which is tequila, mezcal, lime juice. I think that's for the most part. All it. sorts of great stuff, yeah, let me tell you. It was good. Cur- courtesy of Carlos, thank you, and Judy, thank you. I just want to know, Vanessa, is the second one better than the first one? (laughs) (laughs) Always. 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 But no, I actually ordered it because I've been going for a West alarm recently. So so have you, Carlos, working. Right. Actually, tell you might want to go with that story. So you own property far west or west of Austin? I, well, in the hill country. In the hill That's country. not what I meant. I meant like way far west. Well, you are the city of County. But, but you're yeah. seeing in the property that you yes. own, you're seeing impacts already. Oh yeah, we have a small piece of property between Wimberley and Blanco. My, my husband and I, and one of the reasons we bought it is because uh, we got access to this river park that's spring-fed where we could you know swim and kayak and we did that last summer and you know all during COVID we went there and hung out and it was just amazing and it's basically dry right now and I asked uh, a lot of the people who lived there for some time if this has ever happened before and they, they said no like it hasn't it hasn't run dry even in 2011 so the question is is this from drought or is it from groundwater pumping and you are in the, the the zone there's a zone in central Texas that's in exceptional drought that's right in there, right? Bullseye. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, you've already had to deal with this when your days uh, having yeah. to deal with the Edwards Op for Authority. And it's like ironic that the things that we talked about, the interaction between groundwater and surface water, it's, it's so frustrating that in Texas we chose to treat groundwater molecules differently wherever they were, but they do interact and we're seeing impacts to iconic water features in Texas now because of the lack of ability to sustainably manage your water resource. Well, while you're thinking about it, so Carlos has been on here before, um, and I know that I asked you, you know, how you got into war. Yeah. Um, but I haven't asked you yet, and I asked that everybody. So how I got into water? Yeah, yeah. yeah. When you were, you know, young, or when you were thinking about your career, you're like, yeah, that water says pretty yeah. so how had that. Well, you know, so I feel like I've always been interested in water, but didn't really realize it at first. But so I was a little gay baby. I don't know if y'all know what that is, but it was like kind of like a, a hippie trend in the 70s when I was born where it wasn't like a water birth but after birth the doctors would place the baby in water before they gave oh. the baby to oh, okay, that's to like allow the baby to stretch out so it'd be warm sort of the similar feeling as the womb I guess but the baby could stretch out I have no idea maybe that's why (laughs) this this is as good a reason as anybody can think of right it might also be why I don't like cold water (laughs) okay 
because my husband's always harassing me about like why don't you ever want to just like jump in Barton Springs like without making such a big to do? It is cold. Like, it's cold. <laughs> what is that? What's that term again for that kind of thing? Le- 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 it's like a French doctor. Okay. I hear that. Um, and you're a tall person, so maybe that's why. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I um, I was always interested in like you know Aldo Leopold. I was a geography major and sort of people's connection to landscapes and sense of place. And so you know, water is obviously like a very defining right. part of a landscape and helps to create that sense of place. So tranquility. Yeah, tranquility. Yeah. yeah. So. That, I think, had a lot to do with it. When I finished law school, I was working for the Attorney General's office in the Environmental Protection Division. I um, really, I liked it, but I also felt like there wasn't, I was missing that connection to people. And that's what I love about water policy, and particularly groundwater, because in Texas, it is so connected to people. It's just like part of our ethos. It's part of, you know, it's a property right. So people are just impassioned about it. And that can make it very, very challenging to, you know, uh, adopt policy that I think many of us think is necessary to ensure the resilience of these supplies and the resilience of the state. Oh, I didn't know there were, but at the same time, I don't know. I think as a lawyer, I like that challenge. I like the fact that people are passionate about it. Um, I think most Texans want to preserve groundwater, and that's kind of what keeps me like, motivated. So. I love it. I love it. That's great. Well, um, you uh, will have no end of challenging things to do the rest of your career. Yeah, based on that. That's very true. Yeah. So now let's switch over to the legislature. And so I decided, like, in the middle of the night, like a week ago, hey, you know, I do some podcasts associated with the legislative session. Um, And so I thought, well, you know, here's a group of folks. I'll try to, like, get them together. We'll get a different group every week or every two weeks. And, you know, it'll be like the McLaughlin group. And, you know, someone will say, this is what's happening. And I'll say, no, you're wrong. And then you go on to the next person or something. But that's what we're doing. We're just, but we're going to start off, you know, with um, y'all talking about the legislature. And I just want to say that uh, Jeremy Missouri gave, you know, he was like, he gave me some suggestions. We should name, like, you should name each podcast, like, interesting kind of, you know. And I, I, so I came up with one. This, this is The Gathering Storm. <laughs> the Gathering Storm. The legislative session is, you know, really started January, but they haven't done too much. And now we're in And so, so why don't Vanessa, you tell us about the chairman? Because we got a chair in the key House and Senate committees. Tell us about those committees that we had last session. And Carlos, then why don't you tell us about the the deadline that is this week? What that means. So you you want to start, Vanessa? Sure. I mean, I think that we are lucky to have two water champions as chairman of both the committees in the Senate and the House that are going to consider all of the water bills. So on the House side, we have Tim and Tracy King, who is 
to chair last session of the House Natural Resources Committee and, you know, has been involved in water issues for a long time, decades. He's been on the, on the committee for a long time. And he actually is now the new chair of a brand new water caucus in the House, which the Texas Water Foundation is spearheading and is, I think, a very crucial thing to have right now because it's providing education to all those members on all sorts of water issues that are front right now. So we're lucky to have Chairman King. He's got a bunch of people to sign on for that. Oh yeah, I want to see like over 70 members in the House that have signed on and um, so just incredibly important and timely. You know, we've had a lot of members in the House uh, turnover, so a lot of new membership and obviously droughts um, and flooding, you know, water is top of mind, even though it may not be like the sexiest issue. I don't know, we all probably think it is. Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> And so, a little bit more to add, I, I just want to add this, that, that, that Chairman King is a Democrat, he was appointed by the Republican House Speaker, Dave uh, Phelan, and uh, uh, Chairman Perry, uh, who's Republican, you know, he's from Lubbock, and Tracy King is from Uvalde, I think, or Medina, or, you know. Valley still, yeah. And so, you know, if you're not familiar with Texas, you know, that's the western half of the state. You got the chair of the two key committees, and they're both from the western half of the state, um, which Texas used to divide politically along the lines of east and west, you know, based on water, you know, where the water was going to be developed, where it was going to go. Um, so why don't you tell us, Carlos, about uh, the, the deadline that's coming up this weekend. Also, um, the budget situation, because there's a unique situation uh, for the 88th legislature uh, compared to other legislative sessions. Yeah, it is. Let's start with that, actually. Um, it is, you know, Texas is very fiscally responsible, uh, conservative that way. Um, and it likes to protect our funding and capping our funding so that future generations are able to leave within their means. Um, so we have a rainy day fund for whenever the economy turns out. It certainly hasn't in Texas of late. Um, coming out of the pandemic, we just had explosive growth in our economy. And and which is a rarity in Texas, we're going into a legislative session with a huge 
capital H, huge surplus, right? $32 billion. Yes. Uh, they, they cannot spend that money because of funding caps that they implement on themselves. Uh, so they have to come in creative ways to see how they're going to allocate them. One of the things that they're talking about is obviously property tax and education, which we all support. But the need to enhance uh, our water situation and more importantly, resiliency. Resiliency of power and resiliency in water because they're inextricably made are hitting high on the list. Uh, so they have become priority items. That's important in the legislative session. We started on January 10th. The Constitution of Texas is that for the first 60 days of the legislative session, you cannot act on anything that isn't an emergency declared by the governor. We've been in that 60-day period. If bills have been filed, that 60-day period ends this Friday. That is also the bill filing deadline. The last time I checked was over this weekend, over 7,000 bills have been filed. Does that compare to like previous sessions? Previous sessions, we've had as high as 10 to 12. I think we're going to surpass that. Because a whole bunch get filed. A whole bunch. This week is going to be crazy. crazy. This this week is going to be crazy. But the committees have been named. Both the Senate always names our committees early. The House typically names them at the end of February. They did not this time. They named their committees early on in February. They're ready to hit the ground running. There's a tremendous amount of water bills, really good water bills that Vanessa has already referenced, that have already been filed. Those hearings are going to commence right now. And so you can see a lot of activity between now and May 28th when the session ends. And one of the things that we've noticed, Vanessa and I are tracking legislation, is that there's a lot on how to utilize the surplus for funding, and let's talk more about that. But there's also a lot about the resiliency of our infrastructure and much much more than I've ever seen before. And I'm kind of joking about it because one of the things we look at is how well are we taking into account a changing climate as it impacts our water? And I, you notice I said a changing climate because we can't say climate change. <laughs> we have a lot of bills, right? But we have a ton of bills that they're not saying climate change, but it's the same resiliency. Oh, drought worse than the record. There's actually That's what I said in my article. You know, yeah, sorry yeah. about that, because you know, people were more amenable to to listening to you know, discussions about drought. Well, to your article, there's a bill that was filed that will allow regional planning groups now to plan for a drought worse than Oh, good. Okay. Well, that's a sunset bill. So, the, so the idea bill. behind that, you know, was um, not that they have to have the projects to to meet a need greater than drought of record, but if they at least think about it. You know, we don't want to get to like the point where. Okay, we've exceeded the drought record. We don't know what to do next. I mean, you know, what I'm what I was suggesting was, hey, let's just let's just you know get together and think about what you might do should you go past this point. I mean, what are some of the things that you're going to have to scramble to do that you, you could do? And you're better off thinking about now. Um, let me add a couple things here before we go forward. So, if you want to, if listeners, you want to find out about this this uh, record budget surplus that the legislature has to to deal with, uh, go back a couple of months and listen to my interview with Glenn Hager, the comptroller, who was a senator and um, also had some great water legislation um, that we're both familiar with, or all familiar with. 
And uh, the other thing, I can't remember what this. Well, the other thing, I think uh, one of the things I'd like to hear from you. I want to reverse uh, the roles. You talk. You may want to talk about how misleading the term "driver of record" really is. You did studies on tree ring data. Why don't you talk about that? Well, so if um, if you really, really sleep, you can't get to sleep. That's it. You can't get to sleep sometime. Bo Reed, um, our journal article, I think we published in 2010, the Texas Water Journal called Stick Chronology of Drought in South Texas, where uh, for about you know 18 months, um, Malcolm Cleveland, a professor uh, at the University of Arkansas at their treating lab, he had a graduate student named Richard Castile, who was at UT at the time, the Jackson School. And I um, went around and, and sampled bald cypress trees because Dr. Cleveland had been part of the research that had found on the East Coast that in the tree ring records of 2,000-year-old bald cypress trees, they were able to see that the Jonestown um, colony, Jamestown, Jamestown, sorry, um, Jamestown colony failed because of the worst drought that had happened, you know, in hundreds of years or a thousand years. And so when it's in the history books. Right, in the history books. But it will be. And uh, so um, you mentioned earlier geographer, so, so am I. When I was getting my doctorate in Texas State, I met Dr. Cleveland and um, at a uh, conference. And I called him up. I said, hey, let's do a study on this. And he said, are there ball cypress trees in Texas? I was like, yeah, there are. And uh, he's like, oh, okay. And then, he's, then he said, well, what I'll do is I'll get a, a canoe and a graduate student. We'll just canoe down all the rivers and get out and take samples. I was like, well, in Texas, you can't really do that because you you'll get shot. Right, right. So, and he was like, "Well, we can't do the study." I'm like, "Don't worry, I will be. I will be able to find people at branches, and you know, we'll talk to Parcel Wallace and other people who have land in this region who got all cypress trees on it, and they will let you sample." And they did. And so we sampled, um, you know, 330 trees and took 800 and some odd samples and reconstructed the drought cycle back to 1500. And this is a long, you know, winding answer to what Carlos was was uh, saying earlier about the drought record. I mean, there have been, you know, at least three droughts or at least I think it's three. It's been a while. I've had, you know, I had this great rain, right? Uh, that works. Everything we say is going to be really That's right. Long. That's right. That's right. And, and those droughts, you know, were substantially worse and longer than the drought record. Uh, which I remember when I first started got into water, people were arguing, oh, you know, we haven't had a drought like that in 2,000 years. Yeah, we no, have. We have. And, you know, when's the next one coming? No one knows. It, it could be. I mean, as a water manager, but that's, that's a key point. As a water manager, you don't know if you are in the next drought. Record. And so, even though the pressure is not to manage, you also don't like know that. when it's going to end. Right. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. I mean, you, you have to, I mean, you know, you really have to think in the back of your head, I know what everybody wants us to do, but we don't know when this drought's going to end. And so we've got to make sure whatever we do, we are, you know, kind of having reserve, you know, that there's something more that we can do uh, to address our 
our water needs or our water use should this turn out to be a summer drought. Well, and that's actually, that reminds me of what I was going to say way back when, um, which is that I feel like when we see our springs drying up or we see our rivers drying up and we attribute it to drought, whether it's a drought versus the drought of record or the drought that we know right now, I think the tendency is to just kind of throw our hands up and be like, well, there's nothing we can do about that. So, you know, we'll just pray for rain. But that doesn't have to be the solution. And I feel like what needs to happen in order for Texas to be resilient is to think more proactively, to think more innovatively. So I am excited about, you know, some of what I'm seeing during this legislative session. We do need to be looking at new water supplies. There's also an effort to uh, create a land and water conservation fund right. the legislature, which would uh, enable funding for more stewardship-oriented practices. Right. I think that is a piece of the pie yep. that you know we also need. Yep. So there's not like one solution to to ensuring the resilience of our water supply during drought. It's like a whole lot of different things. It's the new water supplies. It's it's the uh, land and water conservation efforts, um, you know, through incentives to landowners to conserve. But, you know, the thing that we're really working on, and I'm really working on, is the management of groundwater. Yeah. And yeah. that is still a really crucial piece of the puzzle because right. we, we want to see springs and rivers continue to flow. And I hey. think they can continue to flow if we actually yeah. you know, it, I think it's that, but I also think it's you and I travel Texas, you do as well, Todd. <clears throat> and we know that in the areas where you see these impacts, groundwater is the only game in town. Yeah. And when that is depleted, there is no alternative option. And that's a serious place. Yeah, you know, what are those parts of Texas gonna look like? I mean, you know, what are people that what's gonna happen to that land and those communities? Um, and I just to just to add, you know, nothing wrong with prayer with praying for rain, but God gives, you know, the ability to figure out what's going on and do something about it, right? And so, you know, we we can do more and should be doing more and hopefully will be more, but, um, you know, once you have mined your offers, and, you know, they're not all, you know, talk about the Edwards offer a lot, you know, it's a totally different animal than the Ogallala or some of these other ones where, you know, it's not going to go back to the way it was. Um, and so, you know, you're making an irretrievable, it's hard to say at this point, irretrievable commitment of resources, right? Yeah. By taking out all the water, some of these aquifers. Um, and I don't think people, yeah. I don't think people really know what that means. Right. You know, and I mean, this is a conversation I've had with other water stakeholders is like, the, the desired future condition that long-term management tool is supposed to, you know, create a, a pathway. It's, it's a goal, right? Like for districts, what we want to offer to be to look like in the future. What does that actually mean for people that live there? It's really hard. It is hard. You know, and somehow we need to change. Well, I think I think.
think it's hard, and I think what was particularly harder was sitting through the interim session hearings that you and I attended, and you were in some thought as well, where you had landowners that are being impacted today by projects which we don't need to mention them because it could be those impacts are, are occurring in Texas today and they're going to be occurring in other parts of Texas in the future. <clears throat> where you have a larger project coming in because water needs to move from where it is to where it isn't. We get that. But there's people that never chose to participate in that project. They have a legacy to the land. They have a generational attachment to it. And now they're waking up one day and their well is dry. It doesn't mean the aquifer is dry. It's just wherever their well screen was placed, the water isn't getting there anymore. In some, in very few districts, do we have the ability to go in and assist those landowners to dig the well deeper. In the vast majority of Texas, it's still the rule of capture. So you're really in a world of hurt when your well starts to cavitate or where your well screen goes dry. What are we going to do for those people? We heard that testimony during the interim, and we can do better. Texas can do better. Yeah, I mean, groundwater is a property right, right. you know, and groundwater gets your choice to protect that. Yep. And it can't just be the right to produce. It also has to be the right to conserve it for future use. Right. The right to conserve it because you want to ensure that a spring or you know a stream on your property or even downstream of your property is going to continue to flow. I mean, you own that groundwater in place, and you know it does support like the overall system, yeah. that overall aquifer system, which you know we've we've said is, is infrastructure in Texas. And to me, you know, I look at. The investment to for these big, you know, we're not no need to talk about the one I think you're referring to, but you know, the the infrastructure to bring that water to where it goes. I mean, it's an enormous amount of money. Yep. And so, you know, mitigating the damage to these wells that's not much compared to those projects. And so, I look at that and I think, you know, that's that makes sense. I don't want people to like universally not like my project, right? I mean, you know, it's, for, for those with that, that much money invested, I, I'm kind of surprised that, you know, the mitigation has not happened, even though it's outside of the district where the water is. I think it's sad that we have to have a bill to authorize mitigation of a certain groundwater conservation district. That's a bill that's I think that mitigation should be authorized, if not required, of all trans- transport permits. Look, I said it, and I'm not against moving water from where it is to where it isn't. Right. You need to recognize and mitigate the impacts of the area. And I, yeah, and I've, I've testified, you know, at the Senate House that, you know, obviously mitigation is important, but it's a band-aid. And we need to be looking, you know, we need to back up and look at how can we manage this uh, system proactively in a way that avoids the need for maybe as much mitigation. Yeah. You know, Greg Ellis always says, like, you're going to pump drama, there's going to be an impact. So it's like how much impacts are being okay living with. And I think what's happening is that there's impacts occurring and the people who are impacted never had a voice in that in that, right? I mean yeah. they were never part of that decision making. You know, they're fighting it after the fact. They were they were never brought to the table early on to 
impact, you know, a conversation yeah. about what the impact is going to be and what that means to them and what's needed to potentially reduce those overall. And I think what makes it worse, and this is one of the reasons I so enjoy working with Vanessa at EDF, is we highlight how the processes we've set up are actually skewed the other way. We have the ability... This is in your new paper. It's in the paper. What, what is... By the way, what's the title of it and where, where do you get it? We need to make sure people know that. <laughs> it is the inextricable link. Groundwater planning. Like Groundwater planning, the inextricable link with, uh, to, uh, between the DFCs. Between the DFCs and, and state water planning. Yes. And you get it at the EDF website? Yeah. It's on our website. Okay. So I don't know how you include a link on a podcast, but I can. Well, you, you and just tell them what it is. That's the only way you do it. Yeah. yeah. And it's also available in the RSH to our website. Okay. Well for so EDF Texas and, 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 and RSH2O.com. Gotcha. <laughs> but one of the things that we highlight in the paper is that the, the process is skewed towards production. We not only have a model for desired future conditions, we have an estimate of the total amount of water you can produce. Doesn't matter doesn't mean you, you'll be able to, but it's the total amount that's there. Yeah. We don't have a bookend, and you may want to talk about the efforts we've been trying to, yeah, uh, to do on that. There's a bill that a lot of different stakeholders have been trying to get passed um, that would essentially require the water quality for to model the sustainable yield or the max sustained aquifers as a bookend to the total storage that's in aquifers. So that districts can use that volume when they're adopting their future conditions to provide like a well-rounded picture of what what's actually potentially available. So, so tell us what's the, so right now they they give the numbers what they be managed available groundwater. Is that or did I get that wrong? Well, that's that's correct. Model. That's Mac. Model. Yeah, 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 I knew I got it wrong. But there's another one. So, there's a terse. Well, right, yeah. yeah. So basically, the way the process works is that every five years, groundwater conservation districts, GCDs, yeah. get together in a groundwater management area, or GMA. There's the districts managing groundwater over at the same aquifer, and they are required to adopt the desired future condition, the DFC. Um, they you know, have to go through the listing factors. That we've been talking about tonight um, to determine that DFC. They also um, utilize the water development towards groundwater availability models or GAMs in doing that. And then they provide that DFC to the water development board, then gives them back something called the model available groundwater on that, which is the amount of groundwater that can be pumped and achieved the DFC. So it's kind of complicated. There's a lot of acronyms, but you know, ultimately, um, you know that that mobile build of groundwater and the DFC inform water availability in the state water plan. And one of the things that districts have to consider when they're adopting DFCs is something called the total estimated recoverable storage, or TERS, which is essentially how much water 
exists in the aquifer without regard to whether it's economically feasible right. to So they have to consider that. But they don't have to consider how much water is actually sustainable to pump from the aquifer. And so, you know, a lot of stakeholders in the water community feel like there's the, the skills are imbalanced. Right? Yeah. That, that shifts the skills more towards production, over production of the resource. Even is, if you just knew the number. Right. And, right. And, and so, it, you know, what, what we've been working on, what others have been working on, is trying to pass a bill that will that re- require the Water Development Board to provide that number to groundwater districts so that they have at least a balanced, well rounded picture that they can, you know, utilize to, in adopting the DFC. It's not, it doesn't require them to manage groundwater or land for it based on that sustained yield. But it at least provides them with that so they can make more policy. And here's the fallacy. In the water code, we charge the G chapter 36 of the water code. We we charge the GCDs to develop DFCs on a balance test of the maximum amount of water that can be produced versus the amount that we could preserve and preserve. We have a number of the maximum amount of water that can be produced. We don't, we don't have a number for these. Exactly. Yeah. We have some considerations like the impact to surface water, um, perhaps even the socioeconomic impact, but that is not associated with the volume. That's correct. And that's, volume. that's not an important thing. That's missing. And I think it's important to also talk if you let us for 10 seconds. No, you, we, we've gotten to 56 minutes, which means, or 57, which means only relatives are listening by now. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, it's like. Edit well, out, like, no, I'm not going to edit out. Like no, 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 for no, the I, relatives, and the paper that Vanessa and I have been quoted from, we could not have written it without the financial support of the Cindy and George Mitchell Foundation. Yeah. So we thank them for that. Yeah, but and all I right. guess like just maybe trying to start wrapping this up. Um, why does all this matter? Because I know that's the thing about groundwater is it's invisible. You don't see it. It's still, like I was saying earlier, in many ways, secret and a cold. It's super wonky, you know, with all these acronyms. But why this matters is that it is like so fundamental to our water supply in Texas. And when you stand like at Barton Springs or any other spring or river in Texas, that is flowing because of groundwater. And if we don't like get the management of it right, then that water may not be there. Right. And so, you know, all of the management and planning that these districts do, which is time intensive, requires like a lot of science and funding that we need more of. Like, it's super important to that process. It's super important to making sure that that water that you know we get to swim in is there. Right. Right. You see the the things that. Uh, California and Arizona and Nevada and Utah, etc., are going through, and you think, you know, that uh, there would be a reaction. Well, well, we don't want to have to go through that, and we, we're having all this growth here in Texas, so you know, we're going to make sure that we're prepared or we we have the information we need. But you know, I haven't seen a whole lot of evidence that that's kind of been the reaction that people are watching what's going on out west and saying, 
okay, we we need to like you know step our game up or something. But uh, we're Texas, right? You know, we kind of do our own thing. And, but you know, I mean, we're we're sitting here in Austin, and the Colorado River is like right behind us, and there's essentially been like zero inflow for several months. For year. I mean, it's I mean it's been over a long year. time, over a year, I would say. And what was the announcement? They just heard the announcement. Yeah, tell everybody about that real quick. So the you know the the, the Highland Lakes were developed for flood control. Um, and in developing the Highland Lakes that are around Austin, northwest of us, um, it also was developed to store water for agriculture and use as a secondary use. This year, they just announced there will be no water for agriculture use. Think about the impact that that has to the economy of the second Texas. You know, there's one thing that humans, a couple of things that humans haven't gotten over. We still like to eat, and we still like to drink water, yeah. and without it, we can't have either one. Right, so, right. It's a tough, it's a tough deal. It's a- uh, to his credit, though, Senator Perry has said that he wants honest water planning. Yeah. You cannot have honest water planning without better data and updated models. Right. And that's one of the things that we're pressing. Right. Without, like, effective groundwater planning. Yeah. You can't have sound water planning. So. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And so just to, uh, you know, so everybody knows what that impact is, uh, you know, down south of Austin, uh, the Colorado River, before it reaches the Gulf of Mexico, uh, supplies water for, you know, a very large area uh, where rice is grown. You know, it's a very water, you know, thirsty crop. And so this year they're not going to be getting any water out of the Highland Lakes for rice. And so, yeah. yeah. What is, what is... That's a lot of jobs lost right yeah. now. Yeah, and, you know, the, the, the groundwater pumping that's occurring in the upper stretches of the tributaries that feed the Colorado River and the drought, I mean, are, I think, a huge part of why we're seeing right. explodes and these impacts to rice farmers. So we have to start, you know, thinking about how we manage yeah. water systems, you know, kind of together. Right. I'm all for, you know, private ownership. I'm not saying that needs to change, but we definitely need to think about how we uh, you know, work together right. to manage these two resources. And if you're if you're downstream of Colorado, looking upstream, you're saying, well, you know, there's a lot of very very expensive real estate all around those Highland Lakes, or at least around Lake Travis, and and uh, you know, a lot of green logs. Yeah, a lot of green worry, logs. Though, and stuff, you know, because you know, I mean, they depend on that water just as much as the rice farmers do. Right. So, right, but yeah. they're. Their goal is to keep it in the reservoir. And so, you know, the. <laughs> uh, well, okay. We've gone one minute or one hour, sorry, in two minutes. Uh, what do you think? You think that's enough? Think we're good. We, we, we could do a whole other session. Oh, we could. <laughs> yes. we could. We could. Maybe we should towards the end of the session. See well, what actually survived. Recap. Y'all, yeah. y'all did very well. And so, what I'm thinking is that, you know, after the session, we'll get a group together to discuss it. You know, made of the alumni of the other, you know, installments of this, uh, these episodes on the legislature. So, um, we'll plan on that. Okay. Thanks for having 
us. Oh, you're most welcome. I enjoyed it. Um, and you and you picked a great place. I mean, one of the you know things that people don't ever um, thank you, um, Carlos. You're giving me a light now. My my script here. I gotta read. But one of the, one of the things that um, you know it's hard to figure out is like you want to go someplace and it's gonna you know you can hear people have a good time and you know, right. you know that you're 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 doing something fun, but not too loud. Right. And, you know, it's hard to find some places not too loud. This is perfect. It was. It's a great choice. All right. So this has been Talkless Water. And my guests today were Vanessa Quigg Williams. And Carl, I said right now. And Carlos Rubenstein. And uh, Carlos's wife, Judy, was here. And so I want to thank them for, um, you know, uh, talking water for an hour and five minutes or so. And uh, also thank the readers for you know spending time listening to this podcast, as well as thank Anna Huff at the Medicine for Water and Environment at Texas State University for getting these episodes of Topless Water Ray to flow. That's a bad one. We have yeah. that one. Um, so my name is Todd Bobber. Let's talk water again soon.